The last few months of 2001 was not a happy time in America, and the terrorist attacks of September the 11th had a number of strange coincidences associated with them. A Spider-Man trailer was in theaters depicting a helicopter being caught on a web strung between the Twin Towers. Look that up on YouTube. Real weird. The Coup's fourth studio album, Party Music, was poised for release, but was pulled from shelves because the cover featured an image of the Twin Towers being exploded by Boots Riley and Pam the Fungstress using a drum machine as a detonator. And I will brag a bit that I actually own a copy of the CD with the original album art. We were still stunned. And for a long time after that day, we walked on cultural eggshells. What was appropriate, given the way the world had changed? It didn't seem all that clear how long the emotional half-life of that shared experience would be. There's a whole list on Wikipedia of films that were cancelled or delayed or changed in some way in the wake of 9-11, but in November that year, 20th Century Fox went ahead and put today's film in wide release. One of the first war films to hit theaters after the attack that put our country into a totally different relationship with war. The critics hated it, but the film found a big audience and made more than $90 million against a $40 million production budget. Seems like we wanted to see a film where Team USA was winning whether or not it was good, and spoiler alert, this film is most certainly not good. Our main character is the disaffected Lieutenant Burnett, played by Owen Wilson. Gene Hackman is Admiral Regert, head of an American carrier group under NATO command, and he is sick and tired of Lieutenant Burnett for saying wow about everything. They're in a war zone, Bosnia to be specific, and due to the ill favor he's curried with the brass, Navigator Burnett and his pilot Stackhouse get sent on a Christmas Day surveillance flight over the DMZ. They were just supposed to take pictures. Because the war is over. There's a ceasefire that NATO is attempting to delicately reshape into a lasting peace. And this flight is supposed to be no big whoop. Burnett's natural defiance for authority gets them out over territory they aren't authorized to be in. And Serbian bad guys, covering up some mass graves, fire some surface-to-air missiles to eliminate the plane and the photographic war crime evidence it contains. Burnett and Stackhouse punch out, but when they parachute to Earth... Burnett watches from a hill as the baddies execute his pilot. He then runs in a giant circle around this snowy section of the Balkans where we periodically cut back to Gene Hackman yelling at the effete European NATO boss about how we don't leave American servicemen high and dry like this, and uh, the NATO boss explaining that uh, it's just going to be bad press if we go get him. The bad guys toss the wreckage of the plane, looking for film, but surprise, the digital revolution has made it to the military, and the photos are actually on a Sony mini-disc secretly hidden in the ejector seat that Burnett is headed back to. Director John Moore pulls out every trick in the 90s action movie playbook as the entire Serbian military simultaneously fires on our slow-motion running hero, who escapes with the disc that will surely get all the bad guys in big trouble with The Hague, Gene Hackman personally commanding the helicopters that are dispatched to rescue Wilson, fires back, killing all the bad guys. Because of how long it takes to produce and edit a feature film, it's worth noting that, like the album cover and the Spider-Man trailer, this film was all but finished before September the 11th came and went. The central theme of the film is grappling with what America's military role in the world should be. 
the answers to those questions meant something really different by the time this film came out and the cheeseburger, cheeseburger, bang, bangness of it all, which might have felt weird and forced had George W. Bush listened to his intelligence briefings and stopped September the 11th, which he could have done, suddenly felt like a comfort to the shocked and angered moviegoers of November 2001. We're here on another useless joyride at the cost of mere millions to the U.S. taxpayer, today on Friendly Fire, Behind Enemy Lines. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that was just supposed to take pictures. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. It's another, it was just supposed to be a recon mission movie. I love those movies. Those are the best <laughs> it's Ad, movies. It's Adam's favorite genre. <laughs> I was really, it's, that's not how you say that. Jean. Is it? <laughs> it is in France. Jean. Cocavin. <laughs> Pot au feu. There's a Frenchman in this movie. Ben? Yeah, a couple. Is he your yeah, guy? except for he's played by a Portuguese, yeah. which didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, but I love uh, Joaquim de Almeida. That guy is yeah. awesome in everything. Yeah. I would say that the machine is, in fact, still on. Yeah. The machine is never turning off for that guy. No. <laughs> this movie came out at a weird time. It came out in November of 2001. It was uh, not exactly a time when everybody was like, looking for a movie about the U.S. not knowing what its place as the world police were. Well, and also ostensibly protecting Muslims, which was the which was subplot here, a very subplot, but... Right, like, that, like such a subplot that, like, while we were watching this movie last night, we were like, wait... Which side are they? On? Oh yeah, like they're there to stop the ethnic cleansing of a Muslim population, right. and supposedly, uh, yeah, like there's like there's that scene in uh, in the mess hall on the aircraft carrier where Owen Wilson is belly aching about the idea of the U.S. military being a a police force for the entire planet, and that was like a pretty like standard issue gripe from a soldier in a movie prior to 2001. But I think that has kind of gone away. That used to be a major complaint of, of political conservatives because the idea that America was a world cop was a very liberal idea, like sort of a progressive idea and conservatives tended to be more isolationist. And that, that little pendulum has flipped around quite a bit. Although I think probably most most liberals and progressives still imagine that America should be a world cop just in a different way. Well, yeah. And I mean, like there's a very isolationist stripe in, in contemporary conservatism, but also it's all the same people that were very rah-rah about every war that the Bush administration got us right. into. Well, and they'd get into, I mean, they'd, they'd be over there bombing ISIS and, and uh, chopping them up with a coffee grinder if they could. So that isolationism is pretty selective. Right. And I think, you know, I think the left is always like, what are we doing over there killing innocent people? But 
you know, they want to, they want to be, <laughs> that's, that is exactly the tone of voice I take on when I, I when I talk about geopolitics. But you know, like you're also. <laughs> yeah, but yours is tinged with a French accent. Oh, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing oh, over it there? Is a tragedy. <laughs> but you know, the left loves to go rescue people, right? So, I mean, if there was a, if there was a genocide happening right now in, uh, in Africa, you know, the left wouldn't want us to stand by and just watch it happen. So, uh, yeah, it's complicated to be an American. Difficult, even. The closest glimpse we get to the atrocities of this war is a single open grave with maybe two dozen bodies in it. But you look statistically at the at what happened during this conflict, and there were uh, mass rapes in the hundreds of thousands like there were uh there was ethnic cleansing for the first time since World War II like the the stakes of this war were such that uh I don't know did this film shy away from showing the true horror of them I kind of think so Yes I read that uh the studio actually uh made the director cut a lot of stuff about how horrifying this conflict was in order to get the PG-13 rating. And in particular, the open grave scene was very heavily cut. Well, I mean, that's the only scene, right, that gives any indication of what's happening. It isn't explained. And yeah, I think that the, the battle in, the, in, the, in Hotch, the town, was also pretty heavily oh, yeah. cut. But yeah, I think that's the studio wringing their hands about what an audience is going to be prepared for in the context of when this movie came out, right. you know? It's kind of too bad that this was probably the last time that America was going to consider this part of the world in this way before it turned its eyes to the Middle East again. Yeah. And that moment was lost in late 2001. John, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about uh, your take on how this war happened and its aftermath. I did a little bit of research about it, and it kind of seemed in parallel to what happened in Iraq, right? The destabilization of a government, a division of a country into religious factions, and then the war that followed seems like a fairly familiar script. Uh, That's an overly simplistic way to put it, but how would you describe how this war started and ended? Oh, I think, you know, Iraq got destabilized by us invading and bombing them. Whereas sure. uh, whereas the conflict in what had been Yugoslavia, we've talked about it in, a, in other shows, right? It's um, That area has been in constant conflict since it was the battleground between the Ottoman Turks and the Austrians and before. Uh, for, for, for one million years, they have been fighting in the one Balkans. Yeah, years. since uh, since 1 million BC. Write write that down, uh, kids. That's going to be on the one exam. 1 million years. Let a dead ridden dinosaurs in that area. <laughs> <laughs> this is where yeah, the first yeah. little mammal came out of a came out of a hole and bit the ankle of a dinosaur and then ran back in the hole. Yep. But all those things, you know, all those those religious and cultural and ethnic forces all grinding against each other in that area. I mean, it's why we have the word balkanized. It's why we talk about it so much. It's where World War I started. It's the crossroads of conflict. And somehow Tito, in the whole after war period, 
managed to unite that side of it, that side of the peninsula, and foster some group identity that held that area together, which is, in retrospect, kind of an astonishing feat. It was then. He was certainly a unique leader. It was everything like north of Greece and south of Austria and Hungary. Mm. Is that roughly what it was? Well, and west of of Romania and Bulgaria and Hungary. So Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, they had their own problems for sure. But everything on... So there's a mountain range down the middle. Well, it's mountains everywhere, but big mountain range down the middle and you can see in that oh, movie so many mountains, mountains. and rough mountains un- unaccessible mountains but then on the on the left side you've got this territory that's full of albanians and macedonians and <laughs> bosnians and croats and serbs and oh just everybody is there uh, anyway but there's also muslims and there's catholics there's orthodox christians Protestants everywhere, I guess, because they they get in under the door if you don't seal it up for the winter. They make some pretty good uh, products for home use now, but I would recommend an exterminator. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's and that's what they turn to in this movie Ugh. for people of a religious background that they did not approve of. But the but you know the idea that it would all it was I don't know if you guys remember I guess probably. Ben, you were a little young to be following it in real time, but as somebody who took a real interest in this stuff at the time, and I was actually in Europe during this conflict, and then was in Europe again during the bombing of Kosovo five years later, and you know, following it in the, in the news at the time, I was two countries away. Or, I mean, I was in Austria, and Italy, and Greece for that matter, but, but, uh, I, I, it was so hard to make sense of at the time. And you, you, I remember newspapers and, and television shows, you know, the, the whole first half of the article or the first half of the program would be like, okay, so the Bosnian Serbs are different from the Bosnians and the Bosniaks. And, you know, and they would just, and they'd be trying to explain <laughs> it and they wouldn't be able to explain it, you know, and there'd be all these, these yeah. graphics and maps and there just wasn't the depth of, of understanding to even explain who the sides were. And I think that was part of the frustration of, of American civilians was just like. Right. The groups are not easy to comprehend. Who are the good guys? I mean, that's like anytime you visit like a very, you know, a, a country with a very traditional culture like that, you encounter things like that where, you know, there are meaningful distinctions between people that look and act exactly the same from an unlearned vantage point. Well, and, and in this in this country, we're neighbors and friends and schoolmates. Like, they are indistinguishable from one another except to them. But, like, you know, there wasn't a person in America in 1993 that could pronounce Herzegovina. And I don't think there were very many in 1999. Yeah, I mean, late night hosts were making fun of the name Slobodan Milosevic. Sure. It's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, and what America's role should have been. And this is, I guess, also a time. And Adam, we haven't really talked about like how the war started, but it was just there wasn't. I mean, that's that's unclear, too. But what I think was crazy about this time was that this was also when NATO. Like the Soviet Union was gone and NATO's whole purpose prior to that had been to contain the Soviet Union. 
But we, so we still had this vibrant and well-funded organization, NATO, which united all of the European countries ostensibly that had been on the other side of the wall. And this was a, this was a thing that NATO took on, but also the United Nations, which has consistently tried to be a peacekeeping intervention in global conflict. And they have soldiers and tanks, you know, the blue helmet guys. Right. But they have a very unclear mandate and they're not allowed to just go in and, and start shooting at people. So there were all these terrible instance, instances where or incidents where there were genocides happening and they, there were UN monitors there and they just were kind of had to stand there because they weren't given the go ahead. Yeah. And then they were captured often or, you know, they were, the Serbs were pretty diabolical uh, and, and, you know, and like they waged the war cleverly. So there wasn't even on, even on the, what would have been like the good guy side, which is, you know, nominally like us trying to help. We were hog, hog scrambled. Hate to see that. Sorry for the like long exposition, but it's better than talking about this shitty movie. <laughs> I thought that the NATO stuff was pretty interesting. Like the idea of a, uh, a French admiral, like giving orders to an American admiral about what we couldn't, couldn't do to extract a, a pilot whose plane got shot down. That's a tough pill to swallow. Like, Oh, you're not my countryman. Who are you to tell me what I can do? Like is a major tension in this movie. You know, the French have, what one aircraft carrier and it is and it's a, a converted like staten island ferry <laughs> and gene hack don't talk shit that that aircraft carrier plays an, a crucial role in my favorite movie crimson tide oh crimson tide what are you a communist but yeah he's giving you know he's got three stars so he's giving orders to this guy who's in charge of a carrier battle group there's got to be plenty of interior tension there where the U.S. Admiral's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I get what you're saying 100%, Admiral. The casting here is pretty great because you have to be on the side of Gene Hackman. He's Gene Hackman, and he's an admiral. It's perfect. But he's pretty small-minded. He does yeah. not, he's not portrayed as, like a, a, as very decisive. We tend to think that generals... We expect generals to be strategic thinkers, but often they're not. As the French admiral says, you know, you're, you're an uncomplicated man, but you don't want a two-star admiral to be one of these, like, I'm just following orders, guys. You know, you bring up a really interesting point because that relationship between the David Keith character and the Gene Hackman character, I kept on bringing my own shit into that because I kept on ascribing greater knowledge or intelligence or heroism to the Gene Hackman character than he had in this film. I kept thinking that David Keith's O'Malley character was like speaking to him in code and like they were having a conversation that they weren't actually having about the rescue of Burnett. Did you guys feel that way? Yeah, like the, I mean, it, and I think it's left a little bit ambiguous, but the scene where he says like, you know, use the media... Maybe the, the closest we get to that. It felt like negging that O'Malley was doing to Riker. Like, well, you can't do anything, can you, two-star admiral? You yeah. just can't. <laughs> Look at right. how powerless you are in the stateroom, admiral. Can't do anything about it. 
this whole battle group. I mean, what a shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, we should say right kind of up here at the top that this movie from the start gives the impression that it is retelling a true story. It is, a, mm. it is dramatizing a true story. And so all of these, this, that it feels very like, wow, this is what really happened. And this Admiral really, you know, in the end finally stood up to the powers that be and he lost his, lost his battle group. And, you know, there's even at the end, there's like a sort of what happened to them after the war thing, but it's 100% all complete bullshit. This does, does not, it's very, very loosely, loosely based on an actual incident that happened to an Air Force pilot. And the, you know, none of the things that happened in this movie happened. So it's, it's a, it has a super weird tone because from the very beginning, you feel like that we're watching a, a depiction of a thing and they, and they continue that farce all the way through the end. But when you compare it to the history, I found that really off putting. And so all these questions of like, well, what was the, you know, what were, how was the commander limited? What were his powers, et cetera, et cetera, that we're trying to untangle there. That's just some scriptwriter, you know, it's not, there was a real admiral in command of obviously, duh, in command of the American response to what was happening there. And he was a guy named Lighton Smith and he very definitely he did have a tr- he did have tremendous power authority and he very definitely limited his own authority in the conflict there were the the politicians actually wanted him to be more aggressive in fighting against the against the serbs and he kind of smugly said i'm not here to be a cop i'm just here to you know do my duty and you know you I'm going to do exactly the letter of the law and I'm not going to pursue genocide as a as a thing that's any interest of the US Navy but he was smug about it it what he didn't feel it wasn't like Gene Hackman in this movie where he's chomping at the bit to go in but feels like the politicians are holding him back it was the opposite the politicians were like can the US get in there mm. and do something here and he was like not me I, I mean I don't want to smirch the reputation of Lighton Smith, but I think he's pretty much a dick <laughs> then and now. He, he 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 retains his dick status. There are a lot of there there are a lot of people in the US military that are that are dicks. I don't I hope I'm not revealing anything like spoiler alert. Oh my God. They're really gonna come for us now. I'm not saying everybody You were at one point given a challenge coin that just said I'm a dick. I'm so a dick. That- <laughs> <laughs> that informs that opinion. Yeah, every every time uh, John walks into a bar, he takes out his I'm a dick challenge <laughs> coin and taps it on, on the edge of the bar. I'm a dick. Whack, whack, whack. But Light- Lighton hey. Smith, very famously, he was There's like, our new Friendly Fire merch item. <laughs> the I'm a dick challenge coin. I say that because he was one of the most famous, the highest ranking signatories of the letter to Obama saying... If you let gays in the military, it will it will be the end of America. Mm. Like he's like I think maybe the top rank or one of the top rank guys that signed that letter. So I mean he's not like he's not a guy that's out here just chilling with some great opinions. But anyway, that's that's beside the point. I think he's I think Gene Hackman is based on him, but. 
Is General Lokar the uh, the Bosnian commander based on anyone factual or a composite of some people? Yeah, for sure. It's um, Karadzic and there was Mladic. And I think he's based on Ratko Mladic. Hmm. Um, so Ratko was like the head of the army. You're on a first name basis with yeah, Ratko. Yeah, good old Ratko. Well, I mean, you know, I followed his trial. You guys exchanged I'm a dick challenge coins? Well, no, I didn't have a good one then. Mine was just the little rubber stopper that goes inside of a bottle of Grolsch. Keeps the top on. <laughs> and I think his was a landmine. But th- but he was the guy that was resp- responsible for Srebrenica, you know, the big massacre that, or I mean, he was charged with it. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. It's hard to talk about this movie because what you really want to talk about is the war in Bosnia. Yeah, which this film does not. This film is not very good at that. This film is like an extended chase sequence. They really should have cast Tom Cruise in the Burnett role because all it is is running. Yeah, so he's just running, yeah. Yeah, it's a real Adidas tracksuit cat versus surfer mouse story we get here <laughs> between, uh, between Sasha, the Caesar haircut guy which is like who who was the model for the uh character nico bellic in the game grand theft auto 4 Interesting. Yeah. if you need a shorthand for eastern block bad guy it's caesar haircut and an adidas tracksuit mm-hmm. yeah sure. and like super sweaty hair despite the fact that it's probably 30 degrees out yeah the, the classic crouching slav he's grouchy because he's got a cold <laughs> interesting like conflict that isn't really a conflict between he and Bazda. They play like two of Lokar's sons, right? But they aren't. They're just like, like one of them is the left-hand man and one of them is the right-hand man. It's re- regular army versus special forces. Right. Yeah. He's kind of like, he's like a one-man death squad. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Did anyone feel that for a movie that was mostly about a guy running, that Owen Wilson has a weird run? He has a weird run and a weird walk. I think it's got to be hard to run in a dumpy flight suit, though. Yeah. He runs like a duck. 
<laughs> you know, Tom Cruise, I'd watch that guy run all day. In fact, I have, but... Sometimes you just need to get off. They call it edging when you watch him run all day, right? That's what drives me, is that I know that we have an opportunity to help. I think what I was introducing without ever getting it anywhere with it, which is sort of like the theme of this film, is that like this film kind of portrays a conflict that doesn't actually follow through with anything. Like the general and the military arm and the special forces arm are just utility. And I wanted to know a little bit more about them and why they were in conflict, but you just never get that. We cut back to Owen Wilson running anytime there's any there's a moment to think about these things. There's a moment when they sort of imply that they're going to get into their motivations, and it's the first time we meet uh, the general, right? Like the that scene where they're like watching television and watching the, you know, CNN feed about how the ceasefire is going into effect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that's, all of that is abandoned, and they're just kind of a force of nature that's trying to contain Burnett after that. Yeah. You know the 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 whole idea that that the uh, that the commander, I, I guess the Ratko figure, is on the phone all the time. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of cell phone action in this movie. Yeah, yeah. and I I feel like that's the first. Is this the first movie we've seen where the cell phone is deployed as a strategic element? Might be. Because these guys are calling each other up like, "What? I'm out here. You know, he's right over there. Should I shoot him or not? Like calling each other on the phone. It's a weird middle time where like somebody being stranded in a mountainous region was like a total problem from a getting him out standpoint, but also like great cell phone coverage everywhere. The cell phone coverage is better than the coverage that Owen Wilson gets with his emergency radio, though. What's yeah, that about? Well, because they have to turn off the transponder in the seat. That's what it was. They had to turn off the transponder. But I think Ratko is portrayed as being on the phone with his political commander, who would be, you know, who would be like Radovan Karadzic. Kara, what is his name? Yeah, Karadzic or Karadzic. I, I cannot pronounce um, Bosnian names. Please do not write angry letters. People don't tune into this program for proper pronunciations. Uh, but he, uh, so he's calling his political boss. And I think what was, what was weird about this conflict was the Serbs definitely knew that the, that the, the noose was tightening. Think about the stones that the Serbs had. The entire world is starting to array against them. Although the, the, the Russians always had their back, but like the U S Navy is, is tooling around off the coast with the firepower to, to, to wipe your country off the map and you're like we're gonna just do a little bit more genociding over here <laughs> like they really were doing that like okay we're not gonna genocide anymore let's just do a little more genociding over here until the until like midnight when mm-hmm. the genociding is supposed to stop and so all those phone calls were you know they felt kind of pretty real where the where the commander in the field would be like you know what are we supposed to do and they're like we got to kill that guy and it's he's talking to somebody like wearing a suit that's in in a courthouse somewhere. That was interesting. That felt yeah. that felt kind of real. Like the guy in the suit in the courthouse is 
just as much on the side of like, let's do as much genociding as we can get away with right up until the deadline. Right. But he's like sitting across the table from, from UN representatives and NATO representatives telling them like, Oh, you 100% we're ready to put this conflict to bed. Such a shame what the military has gotten up to in this, but, uh, yeah, right. I'm glad we can finally get this nastiness behind us. We're tired of being persecuted by the Muslims. That's we're only defending ourselves. It's hard to forgive this movie for not at least giving us the bookends that a movie like Crimson Tide gave us. Like this, this film, like goes in on the whole idea of a press person helping to tell the story, but doesn't give us any deep background on the conflict in any way that's meaningful. Like we get to meet our antagonists, but we don't really know them or their motivations. We get to meet the rebels in Hajj when uh, Owen Wilson gets the ride from that pickup truck full of Elvis impersonators and, uh, and Coke <laughs> drinkers. We don't really know what their deal is specifically without having to do our own research. It was frustrating over and over again to get these scenes and set pieces that just serve to turn Owen Wilson into an action star. And I think Owen Wilson is capable at that, but it is meaningless in, in that way, because the film doesn't serve those moments in any way that has any depth. This movie was done with total collaboration by the Department of Defense. Oh, like Crimson, oh. Crimson Tide was done uh, in <laughs> defiance of the Department of Defense. And this movie, like, they, like, actually deployed an aircraft carrier and a bunch of jets and, like, you know, did stuff for the filmmakers. Is that what happens when you're in... Uh when when you're in agreement with the with the department for those material yeah like one of the thing like one thing that like the DOD stipulated changes in the script that like de-emphasized the idea that Hackman's character uh tipped off the press because they didn't like that as a part of the story so they like they didn't want to they didn't want an admiral to have have leaked something in the movie one of the first things you notice when the movie comes on. And, and also I'd like to, I'd like to mention on behalf of all listeners of friendly fire, <laughs> we have not watched crimson tide on this show. That is mm. you guys. You keep referring to like, as we saw in crimson tide, we did not see crimson tide. Yeah. That's not friendly fire. Canon. You dorks watch crimson tide. It's still on our list. It's on our list. We are going to watch it. We'll watch it eventually. But you guys talk about it like it's... Uh, I've never seen it. I never saw Crimson Tide. You never saw Crimson Tide? Oh, man. Wow. You probably don't even know what color lipids on her stallions are when they're born. Wow. I don't. <laughs> I've seen lipids on her stallions when they're old. Are they purple or something? <laughs> oh, man. This is... The, I, I don't want to spoil it for you. This is going to be a huge reveal. I've never, I've never seen it, and so anyway, I don't know what you're talking about. But the, but from it's, it's hard to, it's hard to avoid the comparison because it's another movie in which Gene Hackman is a, a big Navy guy. Oh, I see, I see. I just wanted to change the scenery. But from the very beginning, like this movie is super late, late period MTV, like jump cuts and yeah. stutter effects, all, all put to like like a soundtrack of three doors down and it is the last gasp of super nineties filmmaking. And, and it's, it's I, I, the death like, rattle. Some might say it's John rude. Moore is biting all Antoine Fuqua's rhymes in this film. I think <laughs> it's got to be really irritating. 
it's so jingoistic. It's so just like being in the Navy is cool and ding, 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 woo. It's just, ugh. Like it's gross. And then when Owen Wilson is revealed to be a like a brat, his character is just kind of a callow brat. It's kind of portrayed as cool in a weird way. Like, I got no time for this Navy. I'm going to go fly jets for American Airlines. And we're supposed to what? Like, feel anything but total contempt for him? But he's got his collar popped. And he's, I don't know. I didn't buy Owen Wilson in this movie at all from the very beginning. I just didn't. He does not have whatever it is that a Navy pilot has. Owen Wilson does not have it. Well, actually, this... Uh, Are you this, referring to the right stuff? He doesn't have it. He doesn't have the mm. right stuff. I mean, mm. you know, like maybe he... Well, that did nicely segue into my moment <laughs> of pedantry, but now it doesn't anymore. Thanks, oh, Adam. Jeez, Adam. Hey, let's turn the pod car around. Let's go pick it up. <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs> so there's that part where they're talking about other things they could be doing with their skills of a pilot, and uh, the idea of flying rock stars around comes up mm-hmm. and uh, one internet pedant noted that this movie is set in 1995 but a pilot mentions John Denver's death which was on the 12th of October 1997 oh boo yeah also they he mentioned it and they dissed John Denver yeah that anti John Denver stance gets gets off on the wrong foot but another <laughs> but another thing that was shitty about that is all the other crashes that he mentioned were ones that were you know that were in keeping with what he was saying which was that rock stars were in a plane and they crashed but John Denver was flying the plane John Denver crashed himself no shit oh man you put a hat on that pedant's hat <laughs> John Denver was a pilot and he was flying an experimental plane and crashed it wow so the whole that whole joke was just like <laughs> don't diss John Denver and do not you know and, and and when you do if you are gonna diss John Denver give him his props at least boy this film sure did start quippy as if uh, Quentin Tarantino got an uncredited rewrite for some of the dialogue right but the quips never sustain after the first half hour I think like I have a huge head alright yeah it's, it's, most, it's mostly just like radio code after the first half hour, half hour. yeah because they try and set it up as a buddy picture. They try to, you know, there's like, actually the guy that played his partner, I felt like he- Stackhouse. Stackhouse. I felt like he did have the right stuff. I would have followed a, a movie about mm-hmm. him being a Navy pilot all afternoon. Yeah, he seems to be pretty hurt that Burnett's going to retire. If I'm, if I'm Stackhouse, I'm like, good riddance. I could use someone <laughs> who's a little bit more of a professional in my backseat. Yeah, right, right. Stackhouse, and Stackhouse, the, the actor that was playing Stackhouse was what? Somebody, right? Gabriel Some Macht. Gabriel Macht. He did some good eyebrow acting. Like, oh, yeah. What an appropriate name, given that he probably went to, what, Mach 2? Oh. oh, boy. Wow. Mach 3? Mm. Wow. It's really something. Well, hard to recover from that, but... Um, <laughs> But yeah, so we haven't said it. There've been I yeah, I have to say it, you guys, and I don't I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to just, you know, ramble in this episode. But um you know, old old John, old-fashioned friendly fire John, original John. <laughs> the John that you mm-hmm. brought in to do this show. Yeah. Um before we reformulated John to be more competitive with Pepsi. Yeah, right. Er, the new, John. Like new John, new flavor John. That's a little sweeter. <laughs> Old John really would have hated this movie, 
uh, and everything about it. But New John has realized, uh, New, New John has developed a taste for pork chops. <laughs> Hell yeah. And has realized that it's that nobody wants to hear uh, old John just sit and, and rip on every movie. You haven't uh, developed a taste for Stallone movies, have you? No. <laughs> New, New John has just arrived on the scene. He's still covered in ectoplasm. Mm. Uh, but, you know, New John realizes, oh, people like to go to the movies for a lot of different reasons. So, escapism, people like it, like adventure. Um, and so, you know, from a p- pork chop movie standpoint, New John has, has, is trying to, trying to get on board with you guys and, and appreciate a, 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 a wider variety of, of things in cinema. New John also hates this movie <laughs> um, because it's so bad. But there, there are a few moments where I caught myself doing that thing where you're like, you're kind of ducking and wincing because yeah. machine gun fire is approaching and you're like, whoa, like, you know, I did get a, I did get the physicality of an, of an adrenaline soaked adventure movie like this a couple of times. Let's talk about the, the, Type times that are good because like I thought that the the jet sequences were pretty impressive. Yeah, mm-hmm. like there's some of the effects don't hold up great, but the they got some amazing like Top Gun or better level uh, jet action. Yep. in this movie and the destruction of the jet at the end of that sequence I thought was yeah. really scary and totally and visceral like going in on individual components like melting yeah. or catching on fire was pretty amazing. The function of that surface-to-air missile in shooting flak before exploding, I thought, was a nice touch. Yeah, I did, like, I'd never seen that before. That was yeah. cool. Is that a real thing? I don't know. I wondered that same thing. It seems like, like from a physics standpoint, that would be to the mit- missile's detriment, right? To shoot a bunch of stuff out the front of it right before its impact it would seem well the missile doesn't need to survive the incident though good point. but it slows it down right wouldn't it slow it down and and cause some yeah momentum disconnect that was the name of my uh, trip hop band in the late 90s (laughs) i hate those jokes and that was actually pretty good (laughs) you're right ben i really liked seeing all those individual systems fail yeah when it came time to punch out what hit Stackhouse in the leg was it one of the explosive bolts or was it part of the flak from that missile? I thought he was burned from the ejection. Oh, because he I, they show something like like a projectile of some kind go into his leg, and that's why he's mm. all mm. all messed up when when they meet up on the ground. You have three frames of footage to take that in because yeah. of yeah. all the cross cutting. I kind of thought that it was maybe a component of the ejection, like. I think that used to happen in Vietnam a lot. They hadn't quite figured out how to get pilots completely out of the plane without, or early ejection seats, maybe maybe not yeah. Vietnam, but where the pilot would like break both his legs going out of the airplane. It's a pretty tricky problem, right? You're like shooting a rocket in a contained space and a guy is sitting right on top of it. like. And you're going Mach, Mach 2 or 3 yeah. or 13. Yep, yeah. <laughs> one of the three. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought Stackhouse was going to be killed when their ejection seats collided. Yeah. In midair. I wonder how often that happens. You're ejecting in such close proximity. I don't think it happens. No. No. <laughs> what are the chances? I, I mean, I feel like 
all the things that you just said about how difficult it is to get those seats out of a moving jet. It's also very unlikely that they're going to because they because in this movie they collided like like somebody over here had an ejection seat on a string and somebody across the room had one. It's like I don't. It was like an executive desk toy of two ejection seats (laughs) running into each other. (laughs) Trying to pick out the things in this movie that were unrealistic is an impossible task because it's 100% unrealistic except for a very few instances that where they managed to get kind of realistic like the whole the whole scene where they where they shoot Stackhouse and Owen Wilson who's a half a mile away up on the side of the mountain and is a navy pilot can't keep himself from shouting at the top of his lungs no <laughs> right <laughs> thereby giving away his position and setting in motion the entire film and also like every time he's running away from like 85 guys that are shooting everything from handguns up to like anti-aircraft flak guns at him and just lighting the entire hillside up and he never gets hit yeah. <laughs> never gets hit they shouldn't have uh, gotten all those imperial stormtroopers for the uh, Serbian <laughs> army <laughs> the special effects in this movie uh, in terms of like uh, like what, what what's the difference you guys would know this there's there's FX and then there's what is FX2 the sequel FX2 no <laughs> oh, God. it's uh, actually FXX and they mostly just play the Simpsons <laughs> F triple X, which you can't see in theaters. <laughs> no, but there's special effects that are. You're talking about practical versus digital. Yeah. Special effects that are happening in the world that are like explosive packets. Yeah. And blood capsules. And then special effects that are done digitally. Yeah. You see a lot of digital tracer bullets in this movie. A lot of digital smoke, like when the. When the empty ejector seat lands on the ice Ugh, on the top of that mountain, so just ugly, terrible particle effect. Digital smoke, smoke is so that gross. That point of view shot of the tank shell uh, ripping through that abandoned building. Yeah, that was an example of that. You know, the director yeah. almost died during that scene. He Whoa. was standing Whoa. next to the wall as the tank <laughs> drove through, and uh, he got shoved out of the way at the last moment. <laughs> Wow. Whoopsie daisy. Jesus fucking Christ. Right? Who shoved him? Did the guy that shoved him die? Oh, uh, he was pulled away by a stuntman. So wow. a stuntman who was in the scene pulled him out of the way. Oops. It was like, hey man, stuntman only here. Yeah. <laughs> but those, it's not, it's not the digital stuff that I complain about or that I want, that I came here today to complain about because the digital stuff, it's like every time we watch a movie that was made in this like middle period of digital effects. These are to filmmaking what plastic surgery performed in the 80s are to plastic surgery. (laughs) Just like never looked realistic, not even once. But we somehow talked ourselves into it at the time. But it was the real life special effects stuff that I think probably the guys that were rigging up the bombs were just doing their job. But whoever choreographed those sequences just didn't feel very good at their job. All those scenes where Owen Wilson is just sort of running down the middle of a thing and bombs yeah. are going off in slow motion on both sides of him. And you're just yeah, like, I didn't understand the- how that scene worked because if he only tripped one wire, why are they all going off? Are they, they all, were all tied connected together? to each other? Yeah. 
Jesus. And I think that they're like they're setting each other off like by they're with the cause, shock because it's yeah it's that one soldier sets the one off right and then like because because they're set up so close to each other the idea is that they're like the it, concussive blast from one mm. explosion is setting off the proximate one and then it it turns into a domino effect but like we see that explosion turn the soldier that sets it off into Mist. Raspberry jelly. Yeah, mega slow-mo. But but then Owen Wilson gets hit by it like 15 times while he's running away from it. Yeah, like these these were set up to kill someone that was precisely in Owen Wilson's position. Yeah. And he runs through the middle of it like like he's coming out like it's Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. (laughs) He should be bleeding out of his ears in the back of that pickup truck in the scene after and, and 100% he's having like a whispered conversation. Yeah. yeah, and he just runs and it's like are we what movie are we in now? It felt like something it felt like something you would get to experience on a Universal Studios tour. Like now you run down the alley and all the bombs will go <laughs> off. <laughs> like the two most remarkable examples of that are the fir- that first scene where they kill Stackhouse and he yells no and they explode the entire hillside. Uh, they expend all remaining ordnance on his position. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's not how you're supposed to do it. And then the other one is at the very end when he goes up to the top of the mountain again and is going to get the the data disc out of the ejector seat, and he runs toward like the entire remaining military, <laughs> with where like they they have tanks, they have they have like rolling artillery pieces they have you know the guy with the crazy sniper rifle like <laughs> they're 200 yards apart like every kind of gun that that the uh that this military ever had is being pointed at him and nothing is hitting and like two helicopters are holding the entire army off oh my god i was so i mean if it, <laughs> if, if i hadn't been watching that movie if i hadn't been watching that scene at 2 30 in the morning <laughs> I think I would have had to have gone downstairs and made a pizza. Like <laughs> I was so offended. And even then I still was watching this movie under the weird feeling that this was trying to depict a thing that had happened. Right. I remember. So there were three famous incidents where um, American aircraft got shot down in Bosnia. One of them was the first one where an air force pilot had kind of this happen. He got he got shot down by a Serbian missile. He spent six days in country evading the Serbs. Yeah. This guy uh, later sued 20th Century Fox for making him look like an asshole in this movie, by the way. Well, they, you know, one of the main reasons that he sued them was because he there were swears in this movie. And he was such a devout Christian that he was super mad that they depicted him as saying swears. Yeah. It's like that's a that is a lawsuit. I would love to be in I would love to be in court <laughs> to see that lawsuit play out. <laughs> but then there was a second time after that where a, a where a predator drone got shot down. For the jury, would you please give us your best wow? Wow. <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> oh, wow. Case closed. <laughs> And then there was a third time in the Kosovo war where an uh, F117 got shot down which was 
kind of that was our stealth plan. That was supposed to not be shoot downable by by Serbs. That was kind of embarrassing. But watching this movie, I kind of had all those in my mind. Like, right, this kind of thing happened, and we're <clears throat> we love the Navy, right? You just love watching aircraft carrier shots. So I get it. Like transposed onto the Navy. Okay. So there at the end when he's like, I've got to go back and get that film. And he's running through that hail of bullets. And I'm just, I'm watching it like, what are the actual events that this is trying to depict? Can this pot, is there someone in the world that's going to stand up and say, this happened to me? And then when I got to the end and realized this is like a birthday cake for some, for like a filmmaker. A parfait. It's a part, it's 100% parfait bullshit. It's wild that they do the thing at the end of like what happened to them after the events of this movie. That really makes you think that this was a, a depiction of something that actually happened. And with how little background they give to the primary characters, it's almost like it assumes you know who they are as if they're popular people uh, that don't merit that kind of background. I am, I imagine lots of people came out of this movie thinking that they had just seen some tremendous example of yeah. American heroism in action. Which is a weird choice. I mean, maybe the De- Department of Defense wanted it that way. Like, maybe they see it as a recruitment opportunity. So let's let's not, you know, draw a bright line around the idea that this is a fictional account. They were super okay with the depiction of NATO, though, as... <laughs> as an entity to be uh to be ignored and run around by by the admiral Rygert character yeah i mean i thought a lot about that like the idea that multilateralism is bad it's kind of an interesting tension a tension that probably probably happens from time to time right like the the idea that we're going to sacrifice this man's life because the war could be over if we do and Therefore, it's worth it. Like, there's an interesting movie to be made about an issue like that, right? You never totally understand the stakes without witnessing the atrocity in full, though. Like, we're told yeah. time and time again how uh, how fragile the peace is and how it must be maintained in the face of the life of one man and his potential rescue. But you never feel the true stakes of that conflict because you never see... You never see how important the peace is to maintain because all you see is war on the ground. Like, what peace? What are we even talking about? Yeah. Well, that was an interesting framework for the movie. It happens all the time, right? It did The NATO, the NATO aspect was just a stand-in for something I think we see in war movies a lot, but happens all the time, which is like, hey, politically, we have to do this. And unfortunately, that means that 100 of your guys die. And you do want your you do want your Navy guys at a certain point to say, well, to to not be empowered to say, I'm going to rescue my pilot. And if it causes 10,000 civilian deaths because it prolongs the war for six months, I don't care. I'm getting my guy. That was a weird subtext. And it was it was one that made it. It was unclear to me who what we were supposed to I think I think it wasn't unclear in the sense that I imagined most pork chop eaten people in the theater understood that they were uh, having having some of that they great, had their bucket full of pork chop. great theater pork chop with real butter flavor. You know, one time Ben cut a hole in the bottom of his bucket of pork chops. Yeah, I bet he did. 
pretty you gross move. You couldn't you couldn't tell whether it was a pork chop in your hand or a kielbasa, huh? <laughs> some other kind of pork. <laughs> but uh, but I think the movie was telegraphing to unsophisticated viewers that we were supposed to believe that the highest virtue was to get Owen Wilson out. But there was this other kind of tension where you felt like, right, the NATO guy's got a really good point and he's really being patient. Admiral Piquet is like, is right in every scene. Every scene. He's, he's also right when he catches Hackman going behind his back. He's like, what the fuck, man? Like, we've had one, one disagreement and you completely fuck me over. Like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) The problem with Hackman is that he tried to turn Piquet's machine off. (laughs) <laughs> that machine needs to stay on, Ben. I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. What is that a reference to? The machine is still on, Moira. Clear and present oh, danger. Oh, And Joaquim right. Almeida's tour de force performance. That was a tour de force. Uh, but but if you follow that, that logic, that he is correct, then Gene Hackman's admiral becomes both incredibly ineffectual and incredibly immature yeah every every grimace that goes across his face every every bit of waffling it's just like pick you know like pick a job here are you gonna do what your what your job is or are you gonna do this teenage like hand-wringing about this pilot that disobeyed orders and is stuck behind enemy lines it's like sort of uh, it's kind of a no-brainer, and so Gene Hackman and the chief and his master chief, and the captain of the Marines that's in charge of the rescue squad, we follow them and all of their, you know, all of their emotion about Owen Wilson. But all you have to do is think about it for one second, and they all become really unsympathetic. I totally agree, and I think that it's pretty fascinating that this movie was able to put some of that stuff up on the screen and seems kind of kind of unaware of it at the same time. Mm. It's very 2001, right? Like we're going to go like like rah rah the military, we're going to go kick some ass, but also like it, the totally unsophisticated version of that. Yeah, right. I mean cuz this these events all happened during the Clinton administration. And that was not that that was not the mentality toward the military in the United States at the time. Uh, and you're and uh, that that's so confusing, Ben. Exactly what you say. Like, how can this movie be so unself-aware and be trying to be a flag waver, but also like it's the, everyone is comically wrong. The whole the whole idea of the movie is just comically wrong. Yeah. Both new John and old John just don't like this movie. <laughs> this is a bad movie, and it should feel bad. <laughs> Well, we're not, we haven't quite gotten to the re, uh, review portion of the show. All right. Comically wrong is how our Star Trek podcast gets reviewed yeah. most often. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I felt about it just when I heard the concept. I intend to put you in harm's way. Admiral Rygert puts on a flight suit and goes on the rescue mission. Oh, boy. Like, he's he's like an admiral going on the away team. Yeah. <laughs> that was Two-star fun. star admiral f- flying yeah. the helicopter. Like, in a fucking firefight, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure someone out there knows whether or not that is actually possible, but uh, it strained credulity, the idea of Riker pulling on a flight suit and uh, hopping on a chopper for this rescue mission. It's very old school, right? Like, the 
like the nobleman king or whatever that's yeah. like at, on the horse riding, you know, into battle at, at the head of the army. To me, to me. Yeah. Rally to me. <laughs> the relationship that develops between Riger and Burnett is is portrayed over the radio mostly. And it's in the beginning of the film, it's paternal in the sense that, you know, Gene Hackman is a hard ass of a dad mm-hmm. trying to make his son straighten up and fly right. And it becomes more paternal throughout as Burnett is exposed to more and more danger. By the end, there's that scene when Burnett is finally pulled aboard the chopper and Reigert gives back the note of resignation that, again, it you want to feel something in this moment. Like, the entire film comes to this point where quote-unquote, father and son are reunited, there will be an understanding between them about what military heroism is like. And it's just a guy throwing a resignation letter out the side of his helicopter before we get to our Animal House ending. I mean, especially because the action sequence that led up to this moment was, I thought, pretty strong as action sequences go. It was, it's strange credulity for sure, but... Uh, I love the idea that they have one last shot at Burnett and instead of shooting him with the artillery shell, they shoot through the heart of the statue. Yeah. <laughs> we're, if we're going to get totally massacred here, at least we're going to make a really good point. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to blow your minds, guys, because his code name on the radio was Archangel <gasps> and the thing they shoot is an Archangel. Oh. Shut Dude, whoa, the whole movie just came into sharp focus for me, and now I love it. (laughs) I could not get past the fact, I'm afraid, I try not to be this guy. I I really don't like this guy. This is the John that I don't like at all. You contain multitudes of guys. But I could not get past the fact that they were using Huey helicopters in that scene when in fact that is not what the Marines would have been using in 1995. Those would have been Cobra attack helicopters and they would have had black Hawks or sea Kings or something. They would not have, they would not have been using those Vietnam surplus helicopters that just offended me so much. Maybe the aircraft carrier just didn't load the right helicopters for this, for this little uh, milk run. (laughs) <laughs> beats me they got out there to whatever ocean they shot those sequences on and they're like hey oh. can you bring can you bring up the uh the attack helicopter what the fuck are these oh this is no. what i asked for oh sorry the other helicopters were being used in a different war movie we were making yeah the scene is also notable for a moment that really clanged for me personally i really like like some of my favorite parts of war and action films are the movie scores that come along with them. And this movie score lays back in the cut for the entire film until this moment when Burnett yeah. goes back for the for the footage that his jet took. The score for a totally different movie plays. And so it's the score for hackers. <laughs> <laughs> I did not understand it at all. <laughs> Yeah, it totally gutted what would otherwise be a, a pretty heroic turn for a character we're supposed to love. Not a good moment. It was a super 90s moment. But uh, but this is the this was the end of the 90s. 
It was the end of the super 90s. Well, um, like culturally, it, it certainly was. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's the year everything changed, Ben. Each war film has its own custom rating system, and in every episode, I get to decide what that is. Behind Enemy Lines gives us a protagonist I think we see a lot in films of this era, the bored soldier, the bored soldier aching for action that his father and grandfather had. Like, this is the action that Gene Hackman's character saw. We, we see his wall full of medals and, and commendations that he glances at when he's deciding what to do later. But, like, little did characters like these know what was around the corner for them waiting in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And Burnett's feelings are best articulated during the scene uh, in the mess hall. He, uh, he chats up Stackhouse, and Stackhouse is telling him about all the adventures that he gets to get into because he's a Marine. And Burnett's just a lowly naval aviator, and Burnett's picking at his red jello, and he compares his own life to that jello that he's picking at. <laughs> Rodway, the Marine, his life is not red jello. His, his life is uh, lasagna or something. But, uh, <laughs> but Burnett's that boring old red jello. So red jello it is, the review and rating that we will give to Behind Enemy Lines. The thing about the Burnett character is if you're going to think about his, like, his hero's journey... He complains about his circumstances in the beginning, and also as he gets what he asks for. Like, he is always hating his life. He's never happy. He never gains an appreciation for his life during peacetime, even at the end. Instead, what we get during the denouement is he decides not to retire. He gets back, in, he gets back into the jet fighter, and, he, and I guess he gets a, a long Navy career. Like, this hero's journey was a U-turn to me. And that made it the most unsatisfying part of a fairly unsatisfying film. I mean, we have interrogated constantly how much more backstory we wanted in a film like this. I think, well, how long was this film? 90 minutes? I think in, in 2001, people were making two-hour war films, and I think we could have used a little more bulk, a little more bulk fiber to this war story. And uh, for that reasons, and the reasons I already stated, I'm going to... Give this film one and a half red jellos. Douche. John, what about you? This happens sometimes in this show where there are a lot of war movies that we've watched that are fictionalized versions of real events. There are a lot of movies we've watched that are completely fictional stories set within the context of a real conflict. It's actually pretty rare that you have a war movie that isn't a science fiction movie about a war that never happened, right? Mm -hmm. Can you even think of one? But I feel like Inglorious Bastards was the moment that I realized there's a real distinction between a war movie where there's an adventure or a caper set within a war that really happened, where the caper play, the, the caper can fulfill its arc, but the conduct of the actual war isn't affected by it. And this movie it takes a real conflict that was a limited and complicated conflict that had real, that had only a few incidents that involved Americans, a few incidents that if you do any reading at all, you can figure them out pretty fast. And it inserted a completely garbled composite, pure fantasy 
into this thing. It was it's like the it's like the movie what U U five seven one, which also featured the the chief master sergeant David Keith, right, is in both movies. U five seven one is another one where it's like, well, that's a real thing that happened, and you guys just made it into a a fake thing, and your fake thing is worse than the real thing. Like a movie about what actually happened in Bosnia about the Air Force pilot that was shot down and the and the seven days that he spent trying to escape. There, that's a movie that you could make that I would watch. Now, this movie uh, is is not. It's not that. Yeah. It's a super unnecessary, hyper uh, video gamification of a thing. And why? What was so? What was wrong about the guy's actual exploits? He actually spent six days running from the running from the Serbs. Like he he had real adventures. Bad things happened. And he didn't swear once. There was not a single swear. He probably prayed 450 times, and that looks great on TV with a with like three doors down behind it. And you're just down on your hands and knees, just slow mo praying, <laughs> bullets flying. But like, so that aspect. What we of need it. to do is make prayer look cool. <laughs> we gotta shoot it in slow mo. Bullets just exploding all around him, and he's like, "Just one second, bros, I gotta pray this out." Oh, and also the real dude, the real guy, that the Air Force dude, he was involved in an earlier incident in the war where he and a, and some other F-16s actually shot down five Serbian jets in the first, you know, in the first encounter, and that would have been a great lead-in to the yeah. second half of the thing. But I guess the Air Force didn't didn't throw as much money at these guys as the Navy did or something? Like, what does the Navy even have to do with it? You look at the side of that guy's cockpit and he's got five Adidas logos uh-huh. under the <laughs> under the window. That's how you know I've he's killed, an ace. I've killed five crouching Serbs. Maybe uh, Hackman still had a bunch of his uh, Navy uniform stuff from, oh, from being Crimson, Crimson Tide. Tide yeah, but, let's get it back to Crimson Tide if we they, can. They saved a, a bundle on, on costuming Hackman. I love Hackman, but sticking him in that flight suit is like, uh, you know, you get that baseball manager who who wears the baseball uniform and doesn't look great. That's yeah, definitely yeah, the look. Right. You know, this is not good Hackman. And I, I think Owen Wilson's great in Wes Anderson movies, but he's not an action star. I love that uh, John Moore saw like Royal Tenenbaums. It was like, man, the what great chemistry these two guys have. <laughs> <laughs> Also, what's that Mr. Little Jeans guy doing? <laughs> so the movie bothers me fundamentally, and and in a way it doesn't feel like a... I mean, obviously it's a war movie, but it's a bad war movie. Mm. So I, I'm with you, Adam. I give it one and a half, like, Navy mess jellos, jello cubes. I'm really torn, honestly, because this is a... This is a this is like right in the strike zone of what a pork chop movie is to me. Like it doesn't ask very much of me as a viewer. I can be uh, distracted by my beautiful pork chop that I'm uh, also eating while watching it. Um, I think from a friendly fire standpoint, it's got a lot of interesting stuff that would like there were a ton of interesting elements to this movie that I'm glad I got to talk to you guys about today and I'm also very conscious of the fact that it is stupid and 
somewhat <laughs> dishonorable and uh, and you know strains credulity in a lot of places. On the other hand, I loved watching all of the individual components of a fighter jet catch on fire as yeah. as uh, as he punched out and the and the jet like automatically burned its data disks and stuff so that a a hostile army couldn't learn military secrets from it or whatever. Like it's probably just a because of the era I grew up in, but I do have sort of a soft spot for all of the like objectively corny 90s filmmaking in this movie like when they throw the snorry cam on him when he comes out of the yeah. out of the mass grave you know to draw a bright line around how upsetting that was for him and all the like speed ramping that they do on the camera movements when they're uh you know, like like all that like horror movie speed ramping when the when the guy with the sniper rifle is crouching in the brush at the end. I'm nostalgic for that too, Ben. I, I'm right there with you. So, like, I, I understand where you guys are coming from on, this, on the badness of this, but also, like, from just a, like, eh, this, like this is fun enough to watch, you know, standpoint. Uh, I, do, I do think it's fun, and I think that, it seems very unintentional, but the film does stumble into having some like meritorious scenes, and the Joaquim Dalmeida character is probably the most interesting from that standpoint, where he like comes in and and, and like if you read the script, like if you, if you read it on paper and didn't have any of the movie around him, around it, and didn't know that Gene Hackman was playing the one character and Joaquim Dalmeida was, was playing the other, you'd be like, oh, this uh, Admiral PK character is, uh, is on the right side of history. <laughs> like, mm. and, and it's amazing that the, this, the filmmakers like missed that somehow. So I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to give it kind of a medium two and a half jello review. Hmm. Oh, wow. It's time for everyone's favorite segment. Who's your guy? My guy is, Lieutenant Burnett, the Owen Wilson character. What? <laughs> Whoa. You know what's great about that choice is that you could be positive that John and I would not have chosen him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, and it's for one specific moment that I just felt so keenly. The opening of the movie is a bit of a, a misdirect, right? The, it's like this super slick uh, Navy Navy aviation recruitment ad where they're where they're getting the jet ready to take a flight off the deck of the carrier. Super slick, speed ramping up the wazoo, lots of, uh, you know, close-ups on navigation computers and pulling the pulling the fuel line out of the jet, getting ready to go, and then they, you know, they get shut down right, you know, it's like right before they go over the falls and bust their nut. Sorry, guys. It's uh, <laughs> the mission's been scrapped, and uh, this is like the opportunity for Owen Wilson's character's uh, hijinks to to come into play. And they uh, they spot some some other pilots, I think, throwing a football around over on one end of the deck. And they uh, he he uh, he places a bet that he'll be able to catch a football that they shoot off the ship using the uh, the like steam launcher. <laughs> And uh, he places this bet, gets them to fire the steam launcher, hits the football into the air, get a, a super digital shitty football flying up off the bow of the ship, and then it goes right into the drink. And boy, if uh, 
if that didn't wasn't just like a perfect encapsulation of anything that ever happened when I got in contact with a football, hmm. I don't know what is. <laughs> Anytime I try to be cool or do something cool, that's about how it goes. <laughs> I, I, I not only make myself look like an asshole, but I lose the football for everybody else also. Uh. <laughs> how many footballs do they have on that ship? It's not like they know. can just go replace that one. Yeah, it's not like it's a replicated football. Um, I also like that uh, this movie anticipates Castaway. He yells Wilson at the football, despite the fact that Castaway came out in 2000. Nice. Wilson! <laughs> That's great. There's like too good a joke not to leave in the movie, you know? I like when movies talk to each other. Yeah. Also, uh, I read uh, in researching this film that when they when they tried to actually shoot this scene, the the steam catapult on the deck of the carrier just destroyed the football the second it hit it. Right, should have <laughs> should have blown it into a million pieces. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, for all of those reasons, uh, Lieutenant Burnett is my guy. Why didn't they keep that version in the film? Just the <laughs> obliteration of that football. That would have been fun. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a much better gag. No, this is going to work this time. Well, my guy's going to be uh, Rodway. He's the Marine with the great life compared to Burnett's shitty Jello life. Uh, the reason the great life, why, except he, he keeps suiting up to go on a mission and then... That's, that's actually my reason for choosing him. He spools up twice for a rescue mission before being told to stand down. You think his potential is going to be wasted uh, before coming in at the end where he flies in Superman style and catches Burnett. That's a lot like my role on the show, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Not doing a whole lot until the very end where I I come in swinging on a rope. So uh, (laughs) the idea of a guy just laying back in the cut until the very end when he can pay off on all that stored potential hero energy, uh, that really resembles me and makes him my guy. He is chilling the most. Give me more of him in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Who's your guy, John? Uh, my guy is absolutely the uh, the Bosniak girl in the back of the red pickup truck. Mm. Who's sitting next to Ice Cube. Yeah. And who rolls her eyes at him in a pretty great uh, <laughs> imitation of my daughter. <laughs> but then when they and she's just like she's got this ain't no thing uh attitude she gives owen wilson some coca-cola which is a weird ad you know like embedded ad in the movie where she's like we don't have any water but would you like a nice cold coke and he's like this is good he actually he actually takes a drink of it and goes this is good like funny thing about that is that that was not compensated product placement well there it is, Coca-Cola. Uh, it has a free one. It adds life, and it uh, <laughs> makes it makes the world a, a smile, or whatever. But then, when they get to their HQ, she's the one that goes in and says to the leader, to the Muslim leader, like, "We got the we got the pilot. Like, we figured this would be useful." She reveals herself to be kind of the smart leader of that little cadre, the Elvis impersonator. And the, the I want a the, movie about those guys. I like, know, right? Sh- this crack squad of a guy who's obsessed with hip hop, despite having like a weird ponytail. What was the driver's plan? 
<laughs> That's, that seemed totally insane to me. Just going to drive back into the war zone, roll this thing over, and hop out. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell. I mean, why did the, the, why did the young, long-haired guy run across that giant field with Owen Wilson? And then, it, and then when they got to the end of it, just like, oh, I guess I'll just go back. I mean, none of that really was understandishable. But that uh, just the just the acting of that girl and and the other story, the other more interesting story that she presented in her brief cameo, I was like, there, that's that's who I want to be embedded with. That's the weird fucked up war where where real things are happening. I wanted to watch that movie. Good guy. Do you guys want to pick our next film? Oh, boy. I mean, what if we didn't? <laughs> what if this is just the end of the show? Well, let's see. Maybe this movie will have Owen Wilson and Gene Hackman in it, too. Maybe we'll get Crimson Tide. Oh. That would be delightful. <laughs> Number 90. Number 90 is um, another John Milius joint whoa a 1982 film about a war that takes place in a fantasy context it is conan the barbarian yes yes oh punch me right in the chest (laughs) conan the barbarian hell yeah it will surprise no one that adam added this to the list is this arnold schwarzenegger sure is (laughs) <laughs> is this a war movie? Who is Conan? Who is Conan the Barbarian fighting? It's a it's about a warrior. He's fighting Ooh, James Earl Jones's warrior. character. Who is James Earl Jones? A genocidal magician. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be a it'll be a really like uh, insightful meditation on genocide and the use of war to prevent genocide guys i think you know john milius has a lot to say about these topics (laughs) you're gonna love this movie john you've seen it haven't you come on i don't think so i think when this movie when this movie came out you know we've talked about it before but there was a moment in my in when i was about 12 or 13 where i said i didn't get a bar mitzvah but I said, I'm no longer a child, and I put aside childish things. Yeah. Um, and I think it was it was at this point that I would no longer watch Muscle Man movies. <laughs> I didn't watch Dukes of Hazard on TV. Like I thought all that stuff was for was for nine year olds, and I was 13. Now, of course, a lot of 13 year olds were soaking it up, and 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 I did go to see Buck Rogers. I mean, there were things I would... Because Buck Rogers was amazing. But Conan? Or Conan? No, I don't think I saw it. Is there... Is the, do they live in Skullcrusher Mountain? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it, I guess. Just because I like hanging out with you guys. It's the only reason. Oh, that's good. All right. Well, that'll be our next film. Uh, we'll let Rob's take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts.
Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. This podcast is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. And our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. You can make a difference. Head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate and show your support for Friendly Fire. You can also leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you choose to chat about the show online, we've got many places to do so. Facebook, Reddit, and on Twitter we use the hashtag FriendlyFire. Ben is at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Boy, Rob, I don't know what any of that meant. <laughs> you're gonna have a, I think you're going to have a hard time editing this episode, Rob. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.